MF. I am your host, Justin Yonts, and today is the continuation of my interview with Tom Ackerman. This is part three. He is a cinematographer for the films Beetlejuice and Anchorman. Enjoy. So getting back to, um, we were talking about Beetlejuice and we were just uh, running up. Is there anything else you'd like to comment about Beetlejuice, about the experience? Uh, we talked about Michael Keaton. Um, we, we talked about a lot of the, a lot of the scenes. Was there anything that like you took with you throughout your whole career or is like, what, what would you say? Well, not to dodge the question, but just elaborate, elaborate on it. And to a certain <clears> extent, um, I would say that on a film like that, where you're working with a, a very talented director and a true artist, mm. um, you're, you're getting all kinds of stuff, good stuff, you know, um, and that is not always the case, frankly. I mean, because some directors, a few that I worked with are really competent. They're great guys. And yet, they don't have the aspirations of making art, shall we say? And and by yeah. the way, Tim, he would he would cringe if he heard me say that because he doesn't. He's not a pretentious person at all. Yeah, and that's not what it's about. What it's about is is looking beyond the ordinary and telling a story in that mm -hmm. kind of a climate. Uh, Frankly, some some stories are just more routine. They're like yeah. what, what do you do with like um, bench warmers, um, yeah. which uh, was uh, you know Adam uh, Sandler produced. That's a pretty pretty good little film. It did okay business, but at the end of the day, it was about a social outcast team uh, yeah. going to bat, bearing up under the pressure of the. The, the people who were scorning them. And it was yes, bad funny. news bears, you know, uh, yeah. it's that it's, it's, it's a time old story. So you're like, you're not going to get, you know, the lighting from crimes from the heart where it's like, okay, we're going to light this all in green. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, to the contrary. Um, I wound up shooting so many scenes of necessity by the script on a, on a, hot, dusty baseball diamond in the San Fernando Valley. Just, it was extremely unpleasant. Welcome to baseball. You know, if you're uh, the outfielder, that's where you, that, that's where you spend your time. Batter, yeah. catcher, the whole nine yards. There's always some, something to be learned. One of the things I, I found out in testing was how to adjust focus for a, baseball that's speeding toward the camera at like mm -hmm. what is it, 100 miles an hour i mean they go fast Could be. you know yeah. yeah very very easily you know to get a point of view shot of uh yeah. as the batter is sweating waiting yeah. to get the ball i found fairly easily that if you put the camera down there where the batter would be mm -hmm. and just and have have the pitcher do his thing that it wasn't like figuring out how fast, how 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 fast your focus pull should be. This is, we're talking about a really long telephoto lens, you know, two hundred millimeter, two fifty. It was just 
It was just fast, as fast as you can do it. That's the speed. Bing, yeah. Like that. And um, you might ask, uh, well, how would that even be relevant to it's it's an it's an event that's over in a millisecond. So, but in our case, we were shooting a lot of those things super slow motion, so that mm. the ball is going to instead of like that, it's going to come boom, you know. Yeah, and it had to be good. There had to be a picture there, and you don't want them to hit the camera either. Uh, <laughs> David Spade was great. John Heater. And, and fresh off of Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. Fresh off of Napoleon Dynamite. And uh, he was the perfect geeky, uh, ill at ease in his own body kind of kind of guy. Let's see. Yeah, it's a it was it was fun. But it's not one of those I mean it's unfair to compare it to another film because yeah. they're all different. But there's a certain feeling about a film that's stretching that's really going out there yeah. uh, to create a different world. Jumanji, another example. Which we're going we're gonna to get to. I've got tons of questions about you. That's the, actually the next film okay. we're going to talk about. L- let me just add, because I don't mm. want to lose track of uh, another, another such film, but totally different, no gravitas, and it's just a, kind of a cartoony film, but it demanded its own vision was Rocky and Bullwinkle, which was directed by Des McEnough. Yeah. Uh, top award-winning Broadway director for whom it was his second movie, I think. His first had been a small European feature, beautiful, but very character-oriented. Now we're dealing with the world of two cartoon characters who who leap off the page and are are drawn into our world. Robert De Niro, who produced the film, plays a fearless leader. Again, a very comic book guy who nevertheless, um, you've got De Niro. So there's a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of stuff to work with there in terms of his creation of that character. And for Des, the visual world that we would um, create. With, um, with De Niro on that film, did you find himself, was he gung-ho about doing... Um about being kind of a comedic character or did he feel, did it take him a little bit of time to get used to it? Or do you think it just. Not at all. Not in the least. And of course you have to consider how the, the project came to be. I mean, he, he was uh, the, the head producer on that film. Yeah. So the only reason the film even got made we, was because, uh, because uh, Robert De Niro wanted to, to do it. So he and Des got along really well. He was so, and again, this is the mark of a real pro. Yeah. I think had he not wanted to do the project, we would would never have had him in front of the camera. But the fact that he bought into it meant that as any pro actor, as any great performer, he's going to bring to that. He's going to bring to Fearless Leader everything he can. Yeah, if you glimpse a couple of scenes in that film, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll understand that right away. Can you talk a little bit about uh, people talk about the concentration on the set that uh, Robert De Niro has? Do you feel that when he's uh, when he's on set? Oh, there's no yes, but yes, you do feel it. However, it's not an actory kind of thing. Mm. I mean, sometimes a, a a performer who, especially a young 
new newcomer to filmmaking, if they if they've done work on the stage, for example, they've had a, a lot of room to create film. You know, it's like often it's a close up. They'll it'll take a while t- for them to understand the precision, of the the kind of craft that has, that goes into making that possible. But more than that, the characters that they may have been creating were human beings, not flawed, possibly very flawed human beings, but uh, they were not off the comic book page. So, Mm. you know, Robert De Niro made something that was uh, probably the silliest thing that he's ever done Mm. by design, but he, he did it with, uh, with, with great style and with tremendous effectiveness. You were talking about Tim Burton and you're talking about how there's a director who will um, push things creatively in a certain direction. Can you give me an example of something that he did on Beetlejuice that you remember that was in that realm? Well, I think certainly some of it, a lot of the most memorable moments, I think Tim's contribution came in, in, uh, in, in pre-production, you know, in the mm. concept of how a scene would be enacted, how how it would be played. And to that, I would give you the shrimp cocktail scene where the the entire dinner party uh, is, begins singing Deo. They can't help, they can't stop. They're, they're possessed. When we rehearsed that, it was on a Friday afternoon, it would be the first thing that would be shot the following Monday. and it was right away, and you don't always, maybe rarely know this, but I, when we wrapped that evening after rehearsing that scene, I think a lot of us knew, I was convinced that this was going to be a memorable piece of film, mm. and it was. Uh, now, Tim had a great deal to do with concept together, putting it in front of the camera, and I think that he, his influences felt in virtually every uh, every part of that movie. And yet, people would expect me to then go on, not you, of course, but people would expect me to, to then extol uh, or, you know, recount instances where his um, vision was so out there, and or not out there and, and uh, conceptually, but just he would put it in front of you this way, this in front of your face and hand you a platter with with that uh, clearly in evidence. And in fact, I think, and I found this out probably on, um, I think this began to evolve on, on Frankenweenie. I, I, I began to learn that Tim had a certain way of a, a language and, and he had visual tastes that mm. uh, he would he was very clear there was no doubt at any moment how what we were shooting or how we would shoot it and yet i never felt led around on a leash not yeah. the least. all i felt was yeah we're we're beating to the uh, same we're we're following the beat of the same drummer yeah he he seems like he sets up a, a lot of things where he just allows you to to play, but he doesn't, to me, he doesn't come off like a tyrant. Like he's demanding this shot. He's very open. 
and he's not very like he, if it doesn't serve the film he's not going to just shove like a, a shot in there just because just to get fancy he likes to do it but the way it's crafted it it kind of gives it this different style that that tim burton has well he's a very authentic person and he, yeah he really is an artist in the true sense of that word. Yeah. Uh, Even though he hates that. <laughs> but, th but he is. No, he is. And, I agree. And, and he, he, I mean, he began as an animator. He began actually as a wunderkind at, uh, at the Disney studios as a young man. Um, I think he went to Cal arts, but in any case, the studio soon realized, wow, this guy, is enormously talented and but he is not a knee-jerk studio guy he's not a uh, he he with tim you always know all right you soon find out that what he is doing is very authentic and and, and he can live with it because it's something he believes in every shot he doesn't just shoot, shoot a shot to be for the script supervisor to, to take it off. I got that sense very clearly on Frank and Winnie and in, in subsequent get togethers, he, you know, for, Tim had wanted me to um, shoot Pee Wee, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but that didn't happen for the fact that yeah. even after a nice meeting with the studio, head of the studio uh, and the producer, it, it just, uh, that was not going to happen. I didn't have the clout at that time. I didn't have the, the credits, frankly. And I think they were still, they wanted to put the photography in the hands of a seasoned pro as a, an insurance policy, frankly. They didn't need it, not with Tim. Yeah. I'm sure that was in their mind. That, that was like a pretty big disappointment, I have to tell you. But um, I had a lot of work at the time. I was doing some, uh, you know, I was really into music videos and commercials and and uh, was in demand doing those kinds of things. So I, I, I wasn't cavalier about it. When I got the call to about the project having gone uh, to Vic Kemper, I uh, Phil Gersh called and I'm, I'm sitting or I'm standing next to a, a, a big oak tree in Bordeaux. And mm -hmm. Uh, with my wife, it was chilly, and we were in our winter coats, and uh, but it was so beautiful sunlight. You know, uh, we were we were going to be staying in a chateau that night that we'd been looking forward to. I, I was I had prepared myself for the fact that I wouldn't get the, the project, so I wasn't crushed. Yeah. I wasn't. Uh, I saw it as a as a, st a set uh, a setback. I saw it yeah. as a setback, but by no means did I consider it to be a the final verdict on whether we would ever work together again. Hmm. And after that, I, I did a, uh, an indie movie called girls just want to have fun, which was very popular. It really caught on hmm. uh, the ultimate teen, uh, teen movie. All the cast members did very, very well. Um, and it did, it, it helped me as in, in the same sense, because it, got attention for all the right reasons. I can still watch it without being with, and still like the photography. So stylistically, I, I felt good about it. 
And it led to the next film, which was Back to School, which was a sleeper hit with Rodney Dangerfield. It was one of the top 10 top movies of the year. It grossed yeah. a lot of money. And so now things, you know, that was like, there was a, a nice check mark by, yeah. uh, by my uh, name on the roster. Enough of a check mark so that with the one indie film, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and Jumanji, which was a huge hit. Now, plus Tim's own stature having risen since Kiwi yeah. continued to rise, I should say, mm -hmm. there, was, uh, there was no resistance from the studio whatsoever. Last question about Beetlejuice. What was, um, what was Alec Baldwin like on set? Great guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Alec was um, one of those actors that you would want to hang out with, not hang out with. Actors are always too busy to hang out, but you'd go to, you, you would want to go to dinner with him. And we yeah. did. And, and when he spoke, you knew that this is a guy who is uh, smart and socially perceptive. He's tuned in. Yeah. He's like a, you know, a wonderful person. That's my perception of, of Tim. Yeah. I mean, that's my Alec, perception Alec. of Alec. That's my perception of Alec, as we all know, as, well, let's just be honest. I mean, he's been through hell with this. Uh, yeah. This uh, situation. It's, with the other it's unfortunate to put that, to put that on an actor. I mean, the whole situation, I mean, it reminds me so much about what happened on The Crow with uh, Brandon Lee and that's, I've always remembered that. I don't know. It's, it's a sad, it's a sad state. I think he'll be able to get through it. They can't honestly think that he did anything. I mean, yes, maybe he fired the gun, but the prop master should have checked that, that there was no bullet in there. Also, I think it's, I think it's way too dangerous to, to use real guns in any way. I, I would always, I understand why they, they did it, but it's just, you're it's I think you're kind of playing with fire there. What happens if something gets mixed up? If we all have just guns that are all props, you know, yes, still dangerous, but that situation can't happen. I don't know. That's just that's just me. <laughs> well, no, I think there are many, including myself, who agree with that. Uh, and I mean, the use of guns, if it is to be if it's necessary for, for the movie, and often it is, it's necessary to have a yeah. real, because prop guns don't do, don't, they don't have the uh, mechanism that you need for, uh, you know, ejecting shells oftentimes. Yeah. They, they have automatic weapons or not. I mean, a revolver is pretty easy to do with a prop gun. But uh, in any case, it has to be under the strictest supervision of an armorer, not just the prop master, yeah, but an exactly. armorer, an in individual whose job description is to supervise the use of weapons, their functionality, uh, making sure that they're, I mean, obviously making sure there's no live ammo on the set. Yeah. And if there were, knowing instantly how to detect that, whether it was a prop bullet or whether it was a, a live round. Well, prop person on, as you know, the prop person on that film 
uh, was uh, given sort of an additional duty of being the armorer. And that's that's unfortunate. They're trying to cut corners. Can't do that. So I feel that Adam's culpability is greatly diminished to the point where I uh, I hope he can get through this, whether he yeah. makes it through legally or not. And I'm confident that he will. He's yeah. got to be taking an enormous hit paying for all this litigation. But I, I've got to imagine people got to understand that, like, that's not his fault. He may have, you may have pulled the trigger, but I don't know. You can't put that. Anyways, let's, let's move on. This is a sad subject and neither one of us can really, we just kind of have to wait and see with that situation. Move on to uh, Jumanji, which is directed by Joe Johnston. Did you, um, were you familiar with his work? Well, I, I, I knew that he had directed Honey, I Shrunk for Kids. And I, I wasn't intimately familiar with his work, no, but I, I quickly did my homework. Mm. I, I knew I would be meeting with him. And uh, everything pointed in the right direction. How, how, was, he, how was he working with? Great. I, I've often been asked the question, so what kind of director do you like to work with? What's your preference? I said, well, I, as, the, as the director of photography, a film eats up a big chunk of your life. And yeah. you want to count for something. You, you want it to, to, be, to work. And in order for your work to be mounted in a way that, that, that it can be appreciated and that hopefully it means something or it entertains people, before that can happen, the director is the proactive element. They're the catalyst to the whole thing. And uh, directors have different styles different approaches, just like cinematographers. So I've all, when I'm asked that question, I, I'll, I, I talk about it in terms of uh, two extremes of the, of the continuum. One would be knows photography, and a good director does know photography and, and its use in storytelling. They know photography. At the other end of the spectrum is a, Kindred spirit, you know, somebody who is really a visual, visual person. Mm. And they not only know photography, but they can partner up with you in a way that makes the work that you do as a DP better than it would have with, with only your ideas involved. And, and that, that proved to be the case uh, time and again. I'll, you know, Joe, having been an art director, at Disney, he, he could do his own thumbnail storyboards, thumbnail sketches that would be nicely composed and the shot. He says, I'd like to do this with a 75 millimeter lens. Yeah, I can see that with the, you know, had a slightly yeah. long lens feel to it. Now, mind you, these were pencil sketches. And I don't mean to suggest that he had some kind of uh, superpower, you know, that let yeah. him exceed what you could do with a pencil and with a storyboard frame. Yeah. But, but the point is the idea that was embedded there really made sense to me. And moreover, that was not the end of it because uh, on set, 
he 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 was always always very uh considerate of what the camera he was excited about what photography could do he created shots that could be shot that could be framed lit and enacted uh, in terms of camera movement whatever but these these were not only shots but they were really excellent images that that could be done as he wanted and put in the movie it's interesting with your mind because I mean this is um it's after Jurassic Park in in T2 so the um we're starting to see CGI you know kind of show up what was that like dealing with like this I, I did you have the animals on on set or uh well no we didn't have the animals in Jumanji uh yeah that's all so seed um, whereas we had used them on George of the Jungle, real animals were mm -hmm. animatronics, which in turn would be supplanted by CGI. Jumanji, that was not the case. And we did have a, some an, animatronics, uh, but not, not a lot. And, and, and there was plenty of animated characters. And, you know, animate CGI can create virtually any kind of a world you want to see. It can make yeah. animal behavior, anything that the script might say, or that you personally want to embellish. But there's this kind of like line in the sand where if you go too far, it looks fake. Yeah. And it doesn't work for the story. That line was always maintained in Jumanji. And where I think that, Joe demonstrated his uh, prowess to the nth degree. It was on our first day of shooting mm -hmm. in Keene, New Hampshire. Maybe it wasn't the first. It was early on in the production. It was the stampede scene. It's when uh, the rhinos, the elephants, and the zebras have all yeah. broken forth out of the game board and are stampeding through the town square. Now, you may remember, in addition to the people fleeing, the, the animals actually were, were trashing vehicles. Uh, you know, uh, a, uh, an elephant stomped on a, on yeah. a sedan, if you remember. Well, that, the sedan, that was a real automobile. Yeah. And it had a system of... I guess I would call it reverse pneumatic arms that instead of pushing out pneumatically would be attached to a certain point in the, in the body where they could draw down. So it came in it to crumple, well, you know, like animals, yeah. foot, the crumple would happen. And uh, well, guess what? That doesn't happen automatically. That has to be cued, but it's being cued to an elephant that is not there. Uh, none of the animals are there. Yeah. So if you if you had something to follow, you'd be able to get the lumbering speed right. You'd get the the, the first uh, you know crush, the second crush, and then it, the animal up over the up over the vehicle and off it goes, didn't have any of that, which meant that Joe Johnston, 
who is the one on the toggle switch to make those events happen, had to have uh, in his brain, in his vision, play that scene. And here comes the lumbering elephants and first hoof, second hoof, climbs off. So it was, uh, and we got it one take. It was really going to be, we had three standby vehicles and three Mm -hmm. standby hydraulic links. But um, it would have been a pretty much a scheduling um, (laughs) semi-nightmare if we even did one retake, let alone two, because it took two hours to reset. Yeah. That was all Joe. That was his doing. Now, another place of which was far less uh, dramatic, mm-hmm. but no less consequential and no less amazing with regard to Joe Johnston's um, skills of imagining what's going on was in the attic, if you remember the scene where um, they're playing the game and the swarm of uh, of, over, of giant mosquitoes emerge. Um, yeah, yeah. Swarming around them and between them. That was all CGI, of course. Well, there was a shot that was all CGI, but there was a shot that Joe wanted, which was following us, one of the insects, one of the mosquitoes around the attic, somewhat randomly, but not entirely. Fact is, there was nothing to follow. And so I, our camera operator gave it a go. And, uh, you know, was so trained to make precision moves, you know, it just never quite, it, it didn't work at all. So yeah. Joe asked very nicely if, if he could uh, ha- have a hand at it. So he got behind the camera. And now, standing at the monitor, you could see what he had in mind in terms of the action in that shot and how the mosquito would be zooming and strafing the kids before going out the window, you know, all, all up here. But he was able to demonstrate that to you guys. We not only demonstrated it, we rolled camera. It's his, I mean, that's his shot. Yeah. See, one of the things that's, I I like that you guys use for the stampede is you actually used a real car. So you have that, you can't say it's all CGI. It's that that part of it, you know, looks real to the eyes, where I feel like a lot of films will, everything's CGI. And I find it's very hard with CGI to get the, the balance of weight of how it should feel when you see it. Now, they're getting much better at this. But it, to me, it, the eye, they, they really can't replicate a human eye yet. You know, because it's just such a complex um, thing, and the weight. I think the weight is the thing that that always that always draws it to me. Is I'm just like that. That's not how the physics would work. But you know, <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? Oh, you you absolutely nailed that uh, aspect of CGI. Uh, it's the it's the mass and the weight, and frankly, boils down to how do things really look? How does a real animal look? That was a yeah. real, and some things, even even, you know, anybody would be amazed at a at a, a a space capsule blowing up 
in orbit. Why? Because we've mm -hmm. never seen it. We don't know what it is. It's going to be flaming and spectacular, fly into a million pieces and re-enter the atmosphere. And a lot of pyrotechnics. In many cases, no one has ever looked at an event, and therefore it's hard to know what's real and what's not real. I'll give you one example where, uh, which is very challenging mm. to the BFX team on Jumanji, was the scene in which uh, the lion jumps from the upper stairway to the mid-floor landing where the kids are. And, and before Rob, it's Robin's first scene in the movie. Yeah. Uh, the first pass didn't work. Uh, Joe was definitely not, not happy. And you could see that when the, when the lion impacted, it just didn't have any weight to it. It looked like, mm. I don't know what, I don't know what it looked like. It just didn't look real. Yeah. And uh, so they made another uh, pass at it up at ILM, which was far more successful where you feel that cats uh, they, they had that, that big cat presence when it, I mean, you bring up a good point. I think one of the things that they did have on their side in some ways with Jumanji that we're seeing that a lot of the animators that are now having to animate this stuff is now that a lot of the studios want to do reshoots. So when you do a reshoot, you basically have to throw out all that stuff. And now they're like, okay, you got four weeks to reanimate all this into the, and it gives it this like patch job. Whereas with Jumanji, you knew exactly what that line was going to be. You weren't coming back to reshoot that. So they had the time at ILM to, to animate it and to make it. What I'm basically saying is that the time just, I don't think the studios realized the amount of time it takes to make these things look the way they can. And when you push everything into reshoots, which seems to be the thing that's happening with these, is they'll take it to the focus group and the focus group didn't respond well to something. So they'd be like, okay, we got to reshoot it. The movie's coming out in six weeks. I know that's kind of what they're doing with Ant-Man now. Is it's like in January, they were already, they're doing reshoots. The movie comes out in February. It's like, that's, oh, that's, a, that's a short turnaround. It's not a lot of time to, to get through that. But you see with Jumanji and that because the CGI was so much in its infancy, they didn't really, they kind of allowed things to happen. So I, I always go back to uh, Terminator 2 because they had no idea if that was even going to work, that liquid stuff, because it, like ILM told James, we don't even know if this is going to work. So it's like this gamble. If this doesn't work, the movie's completely now, luckily for them, it did work. And then, you know, you had Jurassic Park and now you have Jumanji and you you continue to see the, uh, the now we're able to do what we were able to do, you know, in 1994 very fast, but in order to make it look and have that weight and the feel like you can have, it takes time. I don't know. That's me going off on a tangent. <laughs> well, no, but it, it's a, it's, it's a very uh, relevant tangent, but I would say that in terms of the VFX workflow and, and the creative stream uh, that, my recollection of that film was that Joe was in sync with the VFX team and, and in, a, in a way that was extremely productive. I mean, they got stuff done. I don't recall 
anybody being frustrated because shots were not working or falling through the cracks. And I don't think that the studio had to delay release of the movie because uh, some it had some uh, uh, failing yeah. VFX. But again, I think that was because you had a, a director who was a visualist, you had an excellent effects team, and I'm embarrassed not to remember. Do you have the name of the effects supervisor on your? Special effects, George Bernoda. Is that Tom Backlock? Yeah, they were, they were certainly. Uh, Rory, Rory Cutler, he was the special effects coordinator. Specific technicians. Oh, no. special... You know, there were, there were, I just remember that um, the initial effects supervisor who, who took it all the way through principal photography subsequently fell victim to a very quick acting form of cancer and, and passed away. Uh, I think it was his last film. So at any rate, yeah. we won't refer to him, but without his name, but uh, he, he was an outstanding con contributor to what we were yeah. trying to do. It, it's such an imaginative uh, film. I, I mean, there really hadn't been anything like that. I mean, you had kind of the, the never ending story. It's kind of like that a little bit, but like, it's just, um, I don't know. You, you talked about how you would set up everything. You'd shoot it in a way that was very, you know, just kind of modern. And then when like these big things happen, kind of change that style around, which is very similar to kind of what they did with uh, Jurassic Park. They always had it like kind of from the, of like you're looking this voyeuristic feel of, of the characters. They're almost being watched. If, if you look at the, you know, the cinematography of, of, um, Jurassic Park, but that's uh, neither here nor there. T talk, you talked in a uh, previous interview about the perfectionism of Robin Williams. Now, you didn't say you you made it um, understood that he wasn't a perfectionist in a way of like I got to get this sh shot, but in a way, can you elaborate a little bit on how he was a perfectionist? I'm just curious. Well, Ro Robin was a perfectionist. There's no doubt mm. about that, and. Uh, who could doubt it with the, the history of memorable performance and characters that he has created? Yeah. Um, and yet, it was never a hot-button issue. It was never Robin flipping out on set, for example, because yeah. um, that it wasn't being done, that the sequence was not being shot the way he wanted or performed uh, in, 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 his, in what he had imagined to be the performance. The, the only time, but at the same time, you knew that, that his, his, the character he was creating meant something to him. The character he was creating meant something to him and therefore was demanding of, of everything that he could uh, put into the performance. One... Yeah scene that we shot that wasn't working was in the kitchen. If you recall the sequence where the, the monkeys are running wild and jumping yeah. on, on the chandelier and, 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 and breaking dishes and so forth. And then following that, after they are uh, driven away, later, later in the, but late, shortly after that, Robin 
gets into a dialogue with the kids. And it's a moment where he realizes what his father told him many decades ago before he got sucked into the game that uh, he had to stand up and to be a man. And at any rate, the kids use reverse psychology on him, if you recall. The kids mm. use reverse psychology in which they they sort of hint at the possibility that maybe he's afraid and yeah. something snaps inside Robin, inside the character. Yeah. And uh, he really gets down on what it is to be in the Jumanji world. Yeah, he he yeah he gives you the because we never yeah we never see the the world we just we just see him like he's got this long beard and you know everything yeah yeah but yeah that's but that yeah that scene where he explains to them like what it's like yeah. of you could die at any moment yeah it's, yeah yeah I remember yeah. That he really it's a it's a very strong moment in and it's the birth of a new kind of relationship between the kids and him. Of course, they're using reverse psychology. They want yeah. him to think that they think he's a coward, which of course uh, isn't the, the fact at all. Yeah. Now, um, when we were shooting that scene, it was uh, the day before the crew or the, the US citizens and the crew were gonna fly south for uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving falls on a different day than Canadian Thanksgiving. And, and, and the scene just wasn't happening. Robin was having a tough time, rough time. When I say rough time, I mean, uh, he was, uh, he wasn't into it. He knew mm. it. You could feel it. The dialogue wasn't coming. And basically yeah. it was just the moment didn't feel right to him. And so he talked to Joe and privately and just said, this is not working. Work that scene finishing, it was the only thing we had to do that day. Not the only thing, but that was the day's work. Uh, and they'd already planned to break us early, if I recall, so that we could get out to uh, YVR and uh, take our flights home. So they wrapped, they wrapped early. It was the first day's work coming back from the holiday. Same room, same scene, same lines, even the same shot. So as you might imagine, it was a bit of, you know, tension in the air. Things were a bit yeah. tense. But he nailed it, as he always does. And that's the scene that is in the movie. Interesting. So he went back and he, he worked on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who knows? It's the only, the only hang-up like that that uh, I've ever... One, one other time, um, I think I came up with a suggestion or a, sort of a, an aside before we yeah. uh, we had rehearsed a scene and, and I had this, uh, you know, small contribution, I thought. And, hey, Robin, why don't you... Could you come out just a little bit later? And I said, Tom, I, I can't do that. Can't do it that way. Okay. You know, yeah. I'm not, you know, far be it from me. Uh, yeah. I trusted his judgment, and it's not my place anyway. Well, I shouldn't say that. Cinematographers often get involved in blocking, uh, never line readings. That would be yeah. 
a minefield. You don't want to go there. Blocking, uh, at performance, phys physicality as it affects the, the frame and the dynamic of the frame, things like that. Mm -hmm. And by the way, most actors uh, want to hear that. They don't want to be allowed to uh, make the shot less effective. But, nevertheless, but that being said, when a master artist like Robin Williams goes thumbs down on an idea, it's probably really not good. One, one other, Jonathan Hyde, he plays like, he plays the father and then he plays kind of the, the villain, kind of the antagonist that's like chasing them throughout there. Yeah. He's come from a lot of theater. What, how, how was he to work with? Jonathan Hyde was great to work with. Yeah. Theatrical training, I think, contributed a lot of discipline to what he brought to the set. And uh, there, he was never even slightly unprepared for the demands of a given scene. And, you know, where that, where a lot of that uh, reached its um, peak was, and very, very little of it is played in the present day before uh, the, the game board takes over. And now Jonathan is seen as uh, the big game hunter who's now looking for the family. Yeah. Um, but he had some things that are, it was the scene, the scene where he's chasing the family uh, mm -hmm. with that enormous rifle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there was a lot to that that was physically challenging and also he had action that was so over the top so melodramatic anyway it was written that way that had he taken it just a little further it could have been completely bogus you know just like people are uh -huh. yeah but he, he he kept the character in this very a uh, demanding role that required excess and melodrama without yeah. ever, um, making it bogus. Well, he, yeah, he hit that like fine line there, you know, and a lot of that comes from, you know, from, from the theater, you know, playing pl melodramatic characters similar to that and being able to do that and being able to hit the mark and not just, you know, clever twist. This here he is the father and now he's got to kind of confront his father in some ways, the thing that he's really afraid of. Yeah. All along. It was, it was a, <laughs> a brilliant uh, script turn, and it oh. worked beautifully. What happened? Okay, that about does it for part three of my interview with Tom Ackerman. I want to thank Tom for coming on and be so gracious with his time. As always, you can find me at Justin Yachts. And... Please like, share, and subscribe, and check out the YouTube channel. And I will see you next time on the DMF.